With the implosion of FTX and the arrest of its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, Washington finally woke up to the need for more effective regulation of cryptocurrency. Yet, as government agencies and legislators take up the challenge of crypto regulation, national security challenges need to be front and center too. The relative anonymity or pseudo-anonymity of certain blockchain-based transactions make cryptocurrency naturally attractive to those seeking to avoid government oversight and intervention, including criminals, terrorists, and the states that sponsor them. From cybercrime and terror finance, to drug and human trafficking, to sanctions busting and domestic extremism, Washington needs a plan to take on the unique challenges posed by cryptocurrencies. Hi, I'm FDD Senior Advisor Rich Goldberg, filling in for Cliff May. And I'm excited to introduce you to two new voices this week, Alex Levitov and Elaine Dzenski. Alex Levitov is an Associate Managing Director at K2 Integrity, where he focuses on money laundering, terror financing, sanctions evasion, bribery, and corruption. Elaine Dzenski is the Senior Director and Head of FDD's Center on Economic and Financial Power. She's a leading thinker on geopolitical risk, supply chain security, anti-corruption, and national security. We'll discuss a new FDD report on the risks of virtual assets titled The Underside of the Coin. I'm excited that you're joining us here on Foreign Policy. Elaine, Alex, thanks so much for joining. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Elaine, let me start with you. Obviously... When we look at grand strategy for the United States and we look at economic statecraft, the big picture ideas that we often talk about at the center, what are you looking at as far as virtual currencies, cryptocurrencies, digital assets, decentralized finance? This is an entire world. Some people listening are very familiar with it. Probably most people are just a little bit familiar with it, probably from FTX news, some other things here and there. How does this fit in? to our grand strategy economically, national security-wise? Yeah, great question. And uh, there's so many components to this space. Um, But let me start with the concept of DeFi or decentralized finance, um, which is really being driven by uh, technology, new technology coming into uh, the global financial system that has the potential to really disrupt the way we we act within a global financial system, how we transact, who has access to that system. Um, so I think at the outset it's good to it's good to say that no matter what happens with cryptocurrency, decentralized finance and the technology that drives it is here to stay. So this is something that we really need to understand. And from a, a broader national or economic security perspective, um, we look at questions around this space of uh, the global financial system in a number of ways. One is around reserve currency. Um, this is so important because when we think about the tools for national and economic security, whether that's uh, applying sanctions or um, using the weight of the U.S. trade relationships with the world, it usually comes back to the power of the U.S. dollar. So when we get into the conversation about decentralized finance and the use of alternative currencies, one of the questions that inevitably uh, needs to be raised is how does this impact the global reserve currency, the US dollar. Um, What are the long-term implications on the currency? Uh, And how do we need to think about designing a system of emerging technology in a way that meets our national and economic security needs? I remember when I first started getting into cryptocurrency and I had launched my own podcast, which I just wrapped up, Kryptonite. Encourage everybody to take a look at that if you just want to understand 
cryptocurrency a little better and, and the uh, the 101 on it might help you set up the conversation here. Uh, I had seen Senator Rand Paul saying, you know, he wanted to see maybe a new world currency, a reserve currency that would be cryptocurrency, you know, move off the dollar. Instead of the gold standard, now we're going to have the crypto standard. And I, I interviewed people who were saying, yeah, we're going to get paid in crypto and we're going to set up our direct deposits in crypto and we're going to have ATMs and crypto and all that. And El Salvador was moving to a national cryptocurrency standard. And then the winter crash happened, right? The crypto crash. And Terra went down, the stable coins went down, and everybody lost a lot of money. And everybody's kind of like, yeah, I, I don't want to necessarily have that. I don't have that. The technology, the underpinnings, though, obviously here to stay, still I think a lot of question marks on where do we go in crypto world, digital assets, maybe this whole idea of decentralized finance catching on. But what are we what are we going to be using as a reserve currency? Still an open question, maybe. Yeah, I think so. And I think what you're – uh, articulating is this question around system design. Um, what does the emerging financial system look like? How do we uh, use technology in a way that makes the system more accessible, where we can bring more benefit to more people? Uh, you know, a lot of the um, origin around uh, crypto and decentralized finance came out of the global recession, 2008, 2009, uh, where banks uh, de-risked out of areas. Um, there were whole regions and populations that were no longer served by the traditional uh, banking system. People who were cut out and people who lost a lot of money as a result of uh, the Great uh, Recession. And so it started this conversation about, well, what are the alternatives? If the system isn't working for everybody, uh, what should the system look like? And uh, that was certainly part of the rise of thinking about alternative currencies. So I do think we have to get back to this question, um, how do we create a system going forward that is uh, accessible to more people, that brings more benefit? And there are ways that decentralized finance technology and cryptocurrencies can be part of that equation. Um, but as the report points out, we're really not getting there in terms of how it's being used now and the risks that have been created. So it'll be interesting to go into that in a little bit more detail. And certainly on the domestic policy side, consumer protection side, a lot of people now coming out of 2022 with questions for the SEC, for the White House, for Congress, you know, what happens to me if I use these platforms? Am I protected? What if there's an FTX fraud? Who's doing accounting? What are the accounting standards on cryptocurrency and exchanges? These are a lot of questions that are very important, right, for anybody who's going to want to remain in cryptocurrency in the future. The investment community that's bet on crypto is going to need to figure that out if it's actually going to survive long term, go mainstream beyond just blockchain technology for B2B business to business you know, uses, but actually a, a mainstream payment mechanism. But there's also a national security element. Alex, um, when you're looking at illicit finance threats to the United States – this is not new, right? The idea of terror finance, drug trafficking finance, human trafficking finance, right? We, we've looked at this in traditional banking. We've talked about it in human trafficking and in uh, gems and in blood diamonds and art uh, fraud and, and trafficking and all kinds of things, right? Now we have crypto as well to worry about. How do you approach illicit finance as a framework in general and then apply it to cryptocurrency? That's a great question. So traditionally, um, the illicit finance, counter-illicit finance community has really been focused on uh, 
proceeds generating criminal activities. So crimes that generate profits and then looking at behaviors that are trying to launder um, those illicit proceeds to make them look like they're clean. So um, anti-money laundering regulations were some of the first counter-illicit financing regulations put on the books in the US and globally and set by international standard setters like the Financial Action Task Force. Um, and so part of the process for understanding um, the um, and detecting potential money laundering and proceeds of criminal activity is to look for the the source of funds. That's been expanded outward in the context of terrorist financing also to look at the destination of funds. But if you're to understand the source of funds or the destination of funds, you have to understand your customer if you're a financial institution, and you have to understand the related counterparties to any transaction um, through your financial institution. I, I want to break that down because I, I feel like this really becomes a central part of the debate. And you and you talk to people in the cryptocurrency industry who believe that they are capable of, of meeting these standards and thresholds and there's technology they can use to it. Just explain to our listeners this concept of KYC, know your customer. What does it mean on a practical basis? What are you doing if you're at a bank right now today, especially post 9-11, what have you been doing in your compliance section, in your anti-money laundering section, to ensure you're meeting all requirements that, whether it's the Treasury Department, FinCEN, others are, are, are saying, this is what you need to do to prevent bad actors from using your bank? That's a great question. So just at a minimum, banks are required to identify and verify the identities of all of their customers. And so as consumers, we're familiar with this from just opening the absolute uh, most you know sort of simple low-risk banking accounts that, that we all have. Um, we have to provide identification to corroborate our identity. Um, we'll occasionally be provided, you know, an, an update where we have to, to, to re-verify our identities over time. If you're setting up a small business account or a corporate account of some kind, you have to show that your legal entity actually exists, but also to show the individuals who actually own and control the entities, the ultimate beneficial owners of, of those legal entities. Um, that's just a first step that applies across the board to all customers, regardless of risk. If you're dealing with higher risk customer types and higher risk corridors, um, there's a risk-based approach to uh, anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing, um, protocol. So you are required to obtain additional information through enhanced due diligence processes and up to the sort of highest degrees of risk. If you're a bank that's going to hold an account for a foreign financial institution that will facilitate cross-border payments, um, sometimes on behalf of third parties that are not your direct customers, and even third-party banks that may be located in third countries, um, you're getting into much, much higher degrees of risk where your due diligence process is going to require you to not just understand who your customer is, but to understand that that customer might be a foreign bank actually has effective anti-money laundering controls in place. And you're going to do very thorough due diligence to ensure that they meet global standards for implementing those kinds of uh, of policies and regulations and applying them effectively to, to their customers to manage the risk end-to-end -end throughout any transaction that's going to flow through your institution. So that type of due diligence that's for the, the higher-risk customer segments has really been the focus of um, additional AML um, anti-money laundering requirements, um, especially in the post-9-11 era. When I think about what you just explained there, and what's in most people's minds when they think about virtual currency at that point, right? Whether it's true or not true, and I want to kind of separate fact from fiction on, on how things operate, and maybe there's nuance to it depending on what virtual currency you're talking about or what platform you're, you're using. Uh, 
I have in my mind that I'm no longer Richard Goldberg, right? I, I, I'm, you know, Missy Lou 1959, right? I'm some virtual character uh, that has some sort of anonymity, right? That the allure of this virtual currency of cryptocurrency is my pseudo anonymity that I, you, you, you don't know it's me. Yes. The transaction is on this blockchain. It's on a ledger. You can track the transaction, but I don't want anybody to know it's my money. It's my account. It's my cryptocurrency. You're not supposed to, it's just some username, some code. Um, if that's the case, how are you doing? Know your customer, Compliance. How 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 do you know it's Richard Goldberg? I'm not a terrorist. I'm not a drug lord. Certainly, there must be a registration process. There must be some unmasking that's going on that we're not seeing, or that needs to be going on at least for a U.S. based uh, platform. That's right. So all you need to hold cryptocurrency is a blockchain address, as you said, <clears throat> which does not include personal identifying information. It does not have your uh, geographical address. It does not have your name attached to it. It's simply uh, an alphanumeric address that sits on the blockchain. And then you have a private key that controls access to that and allows you to um, sign messages that transact on the blockchain. You can hand that private key to anyone, and then that person can access that same uh, wallet address. So there is there is no inbuilt control on public and permissionless blockchains that would regulate the ability for individuals to create an address and then receive and transmit um, cryptocurrency. Now, the way in which um, regulators and global standard setters have begun to implement expectations for institutions to to control for anti-money laundering and other financial crime concerns is at the on and off ramp points between fiat currency and cryptocurrency. So while in principle, it's possible for me to um, receive uh, Bitcoin from from you and for me to uh, pay you for it sort of outside of, of formal channels, you know, I can give you cash for it or something like that. Um, the traditional way that I'm going to be able to buy cryptocurrency or convert fiat to crypto is through an exchange. And exchanges are now regulated entities that are subject to anti-money laundering requirements. So at that point of on-ramping to crypto, where I'm exchanging my fiat currency for crypto, I'm subject to KYC and anti-money laundering controls and requirements, much like I would be if I were going to be depositing money into a bank account. Um, similarly, when I cash out crypto at the end of the day to convert it back into fiat that I can spend um, more freely in the, in the normal economy, um, that is going to go through an exchange that is also a regulated institution. So those are the, the key checkpoints under the current global regulatory framework that um, allow for some know your customer and anti-money laundering controls to be implemented, even though the structure of the decentralized blockchain itself doesn't have those built into it because it's by its nature disintermediated. It doesn't require intermediaries in order to send transactions. But at the conversion points between fiat and crypto, there are trusted intermediaries involved that are regulated ent entities. They're not regulated as well across all jurisdictions globally, but that is the, um, the framework that's currently in place. Yeah, Alex, if I can jump in, I think you've raised a really important point, this uh, on-ramp, off-ramp situation and and what it means outside of, of the U.S. So, you know, if I'm a Russian illicit actor and I'm trying to move my crypto uh, on an off-ramp, maybe I want to translate it, that into transfer it into U.S. dollars, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to look for a bank in Russia that has a correspondent banking relationship with the U.S. so that I can make that transaction. 
Um, so, you know, one of the questions that uh, that I think we need to raise is what what's going on internationally around these correspondent banking relationships, and how do we stop that risk of allowing an illicit actor to turn crypto into uh, U.S. dollars? And I want to keep going a little deeper here, but obviously, this right now, this conversation, this sort of uh, framing the parameters of the threat and where regulation and policy could potentially interdict in some way that threat or at least mitigate it exists in a world where we're not completely mainstreamed into cryptocurrency. There is an on-ramp and an off-ramp very commonly. You know, you still want to have dollars. You still want to cash out. You know, the the idea of a world where we would be purely decentralized finance, very mainstream, you're paying for everything in some random coin you don't cash out. You don't. That sounds a lot scarier. We're not there yet. We probably need to think about that if that were to ever actually become a reality. But we can we can talk about that. But but maybe just let's go deeper into the reality we have in front of us. And that is okay. We do have these high risk jurisdictions, as Elaine's talking about. We we talk about that in the report a little bit, and and the and the idea that we need to align and and have policies in place of what we're going to do with these high risk jurisdictions. Talk a little bit more about. The things you're seeing on the blockchain, Alex, the tools, the platforms, the protocols that are most worrisome. What are the ways in which illicit actors are using cryptocurrency to try to evade even those who are tracking the blockchain very closely? And there's obviously analytical tools to track these uh, transactions as best you can. But bad people are coming up with new ways to get around those tools and, and hide who they are beyond even what we're capable of tracking. So public authorities and a number of uh, private sector entities have developed very sophisticated blockchain tracing tools. So, And this has led to the recovery of hacked and stolen assets um, in the hundreds of millions of dollars, um, really major um, asset recovery cases, especially in the United States, where authorities are deploying those blockchain tra- tracing tools to be able to um, supplemented, of course, by uh, traditional investigative means to identify the individuals who stand behind some blockchain address to trace that on the public ledger um, to to be able to reconstruct transaction chains, um, div- um, identify typologies that are often used to evade um, detection and so forth, and then to recover those assets. So that is um, a highly effective tool that can be um, deployed and it can be used in the private sector by um, virtual asset service providers to monitor their own customers' activity um, using that publicly available information. Now, that publicly available information is, of course, limited by the pseudonymity of the blockchain addresses that you mentioned earlier. So you don't automatically understand the the name of an individual or an entity that stands behind an address. Um, but you can trace transactions across those pseudonymous addresses with, um, with great ease because that's by definition, public information in a way that it isn't in the case of proprietary bank records. So that's that's an important point to set out. But there are a number of additional um, anonymity enhancing tools that can make it even more difficult to do that um, limited blockchain tracing that I just mentioned. Um, there are so-called privacy coins that operate on certain blockchains that make it more difficult to attribute um, particular transactional activity even to a pseudonymous 
um, address. And there are services like mixers and tumblers that split and re-aggregate transactions in a way that obscures their linkage to specific blockchain addresses so that the, the tie between an asset on the blockchain and an address is even harder to match up. So that's, um, those are, there's some of these, um, obfuscating tools that have been used, um, by criminal actors, including vast networks and, um, agents acting on behalf of the North Korean government and, um, and num- Russian terrorist organizations, a number of other, um, major illicit actors globally to move funds, uh, with, without detection. I want, to talk, I want to talk about this issue because I think this is core. It's in the recommendations in this report, and everybody can find the report on FTD's website. We call out privacy coins. We call out mixers. We call out uh, pseudo-anonymous mining pools where people are mining Bitcoin together or other coins and trying to obscure who they are to obtain access to new coins through this process of mining, which is how you sort of create uh, through mathematical computations new new Bitcoins. There are arguments that some of this is uh, protected by free speech, that this is simply code on a blockchain, that this is not something you should be able to target with regulation, uh, impose sanctions uh, on a mixer, that a mixer is not a person, that it's just this this code that's been that's been written. Uh, there's discussion that there are good reasons to try to conceal your identity. Uh, that you hear this from some of the industry that's like, well, I mean, th- there there could be people who are in you know bad places in the world. And they want to make it harder for their authoritarian regime to know who they are and what they're trying to do to either subvert the authoritarian government, simply pass money back to their family, do, do things that we think are are good for our national security. But clearly, if you're a bad actor, and we know now from the Treasury Department there are bad actors like North Korea you mentioned who are using these techniques, these platforms – to move money around for very bad reasons to hurt us as Americans and our allies, there has to be a bottom line here. How, how do we balance that? Maybe, Elaine, I'll start with you. Yeah, uh, good question. I mean, as you were describing, you know, some of these challenges around how we think about code, right? How we think about the system. Is it free speech? Is it, you know, un- under what framework do we consider this system? Uh, the question that came to my mind is, are we even talking about money anymore? You know, money has certain qualities. And the further we get from how we describe money, fiat, I mean, fiat currency, um, the more challenges we have in terms of how we, how we fit that into a financial system, how we think about regulating it, where, it, uh, where it falls within the system and the, and the conversation and what's protected and what isn't. Um, you know, I'll just throw in uh, an opinion here. I think, you know, to the extent that we can focus on digital currencies that are uh, effectively the digital form of a fiat currency, we're in a much safer space um, to be able to leverage decentralized finance without some of these challenges um, around that level of anonymity. Although you bring up a good example, which is in, you know, in some authoritarian countries, um, if people are trying to move their money out, there, it is very difficult to do that. Um, so how would we want to support that? I mean, could we make uh, a, a, a digital dollar wallet available to more people around the world to allow them to transact and to protect um their resources within an authoritarian government. Maybe we could do that. I mean, that would be incredibly disruptive, um, but to the benefit of, of um, 
of, of a system that is stable within a global reserve currency like the U.S. dollar. So there's a lot to unpack here, but I think we also have to be clear about, you know, what are we creating and is it money or is it tokenized value of some kind that um, operates in a different way uh, and maybe has utility? I mean, we have tokenized value in lots of forms, right? Airline miles are tokenized value. Uh, there are plenty of examples of that um, and they serve a purpose, um, but do they, um, do, do they really um, fit within a system as as money goes to um, use case. I, I've always said case. that it goes to yeah. use case. Yep. Uh, Alex, uh, Elaine brings up a good point about ways in which we might be creative in thinking how to advance our national security uh, with with certain platforms. Um, but obviously, we have people at the Treasury Department whose job it is every day to monitor those who are moving money around in bad ways, including in cryptocurrency. We've seen an uptick in regulation. We've seen an uptick in enforcement actions. Maybe take us through what has already been done, whether on the international stage, on the U.S. stage. The Biden administration issued an executive order. The president wanted to have a broad-based digital asset strategy. Part of that was in the national security space. The Treasury Department has issued uh, a sort of framework of how they want to think about illicit finance with a lot of meat not on the bones yet that I think we're trying to provide in, in our report. What what has been done here? What are the gaps? What are our recommendations? So the the first frontier of counter illicit finance for regulation and standard setting on um, on this goes back to the the on and off ramps that we were discussing earlier. So that again, that's sort of the step one is to focus on these these checkpoints where um, fiat currency can be converted um, to and from uh, cryptocurrency. So that's, I think, a very well-established framework. It's still being implemented, and especially out, outside of um, the, the United States and, and some of its allies, we have a, a, lot, a long way to go. And the FATF um, organization that does peer evaluations of, of countries for compliance with these global standards is setting a sort of global minimum and holding countries accountable for, for meeting those basic standards in terms of regulating virtual asset ser for service providers, um, such as cryptocurrency exchanges that are those on and off ramps um, to comply with anti-money laundering and sanctions compliance um, obligations. Um, but beyond that, I think there are, there are two particular domains that are sort of emerging as, as priority areas. Um, one has to do with, with stable coins. And we've, um, we've considered that, um, from a policy standpoint, it's really been a discussion largely as an, an issue of macroprudential policy and stability of, of the currency and, and the implications of a stable coin for, um, for, for safety and soundness of the, the financial sector as a whole. But from an illicit finance perspective, that brings up the point, Rich, that you raised earlier about whether you actually need on and off ramps in the end, because if you have a stable less volatile form of cryptocurrency um, that you can then use in payment use cases and not just as a sort of um, as a as a fulcrum for various sort of investment exchanges and other things like that um, and you can actually use stable coins um, to to buy goods and services in the real economy then you may not need to convert back into fiat currency and that goes to Elaine's point about um, you know, challenges to the existing global dollar dominance, but also um, 
takes away one of those key checkpoints where we're looking for anti-money laundering and know your customer controls at the at the on and off ramps. And the final thing that I had mentioned is is the even more decentralized world of of DeFi that's um, that's emerging, where you may have uh, individuals interacting on a peer to peer basis with smart contracts that are not necessarily clearly owned or controlled by individuals who can be responsible and accountable and legally liable for the protocols that operate under those those smart contracts. Um, many of these smart contracts could be benign, but some smart contracts are mixers and tumblers and other um, services that can facilitate illicit activity. Um, and in the Treasury Department's designation of the mixer tornado cash, um, this came to the fore as a, a question of who stands behind tornado cash who is responsible for this entity um, is it the founders and the promoters the developers is it the participants in the ecosystem and once you've identified um, even a, a particularly problematic smart contract there's a question about how the rest of the ecosystem needs to treat transactions that have passed through that kind of kind of an entity um, you know at, at what point um, do funds become tainted or untainted as they flow through um, mixers, tumblers, and other types of services? So there are a lot of large questions about finding um, more centralized points of accountability and responsibility in such a diffuse and decentralized financial world. You brought up stable coins just for, for our listeners to make sure that they're, they're tracking. These are virtual currencies that are in some way pegged to the dollar, to an actual uh, fiat currency. Uh, they have different kinds of stable coins, the ones that were in the news, I think, last year, uh, the collapse of Terra, et cetera. Let's call those the certainly the bad kind uh, of stable coin, of the, uh, the, the riskier, perhaps. Uh, but there are others that are viewed as, as less risky in how they're designed to, to stay pegged to the dollar to withstand fluctuations in the market. Uh, and, and that's sort of the, the future you're outlining there. My question, I guess, would be, well, how's the industry doing then? Right, like we have these these regulations that you you've, you talked about. You have these concerns you've talked about. You have some basic guideposts that were put out from the Biden administration early on. Uh, know your customer applies on the exchanges. Okay, uh, mixers could be bad. Beware mixers. Uh, you want more guidance there? Here are some sanctions on a mixer. We're gonna we're now actually gonna target a mixer. We're, we're serious people here. Uh, we're, we're concerned about mixtures. Is that helpful guidance? Is that is that an actual framework for regulation? If, if you're sitting at an exchange, if you're at a U.S.-based exchange, a foreign-based exchange, and, you're, and, and the U.S. is telling you these are our concerns, what are you actually doing about it? How are you, how are you building a compliance network inside? What do you need to do to assure people listening here that Circle or you know whoever it is is not just like actually asleep at the wheel and we're going to have 9-11 through cryptocurrency. So a part of this puzzle is going to be a, a repeat of um, what I said at the very beginning happened in the banking sector, especially after 9-11, where you had um, banks in the U.S. that were dollar-clearing institutions for foreign banks um, situated globally. And so um, anytime that uh, – foreign entity wanted to transact in dollars that had to eventually clear through a correspondent bank in New York. And those banks in the United States needed to increase the level of due diligence and monitoring that they were doing for their um, 
partner banks around around the world to understand the source of funds and the customer due diligence processes in place at foreign institutions that were letting um, third parties access the U.S. financial system. So this was the big push in terms of what's known as correspondent banking due diligence after September 11th. There's a perfect analog in the in the world of exchanges and other virtual asset service providers, which is that you could be a very big, well-run exchange, but if you're holding accounts for other exchanges, especially exchanges that are located abroad or in jurisdictions that have weaker regulatory apparatuses and that don't have a proven track record of implementing anti-money laundering and sanctions compliance controls, then you're going to be in the exact same position that um, many banks were, you know, 20, 25 years ago, where they may have even unknowingly been clearing transactions on behalf of individuals and entities that were not even their direct customers without fully understanding, um, you know, who's responsible for managing that risk along the transaction chain. So that's going to be a huge part of the process is just doing a appropriate due diligence and, and applying appropriate scrutiny to customers that are themselves virtual asset service providers, especially when located outside of, of a well-regulated jurisdiction. So that's, um, I, I would just then add to that, that you can supplement all those practices with the more and more sophisticated blockchain analytics tools that we were talking about um, a little earlier. So that that is an additional technique that um, exchanges and VASPs have at their disposal to, to monitor transactions, to identify addresses that are associated with suspect virtual asset service providers in weak um, jurisdictions, and um, to be able to, to screen out those kind of third party transactions so that they, they aren't getting um, dirty money flowing through their exchanges. There's a scene in the movie Independence Day that hits me to try to bring this into a picture that people can really digest of what is needed here from what you're describing. And that is when Jeff Goldblum and Will Smith have gone to the mothership, right? In their little little spaceship. They've been, you know, the, the whole plan is working. They've been welcomed in. They've docked. They're trying to do something. It's not working. They keep, they keep shimmying. And the like the lieutenant alien manning the deck or whatever is at their computer and you see in the computer every single one of their little ships is in front of them on the dashboard and they see that one of their ships is flashing and they hit it to bring up you know oh that doesn't look good something's out of ordinary there and they tap it and they bring it up and they force the windows open and all that we need to ensure that if you're at an exchange you are using analytical software looking back at transactions far enough, especially if they're hitting some of these uh, anonymity-enhancing techniques like mixers, to have something that flashes on your dashboard in real time before they can cash out and force the windows open on a wallet and say, who is this? You don't get your money until we know who you are. That is that basically, is that, is that description what we need? That, that's exactly right. And maybe just to, to put some... And hopefully some, they don't you know hide behind the chairs like, like Will Smith and <laughs> Jeff Goldblum did. That's right. I mean, and so, so just to, to put a fine point on that, that particular kind of illustration is that if you are 
a, a, an exchange in the United States and you're processing a transaction for an exchange that's located abroad and it's on behalf of one of their customers and maybe that customer is in still another country. Um, the, the same principle applies across the board as part of these global standards, which is that it's not just the exchange in the United States that has to know its customer, its direct customer, but every exchange in the entire transaction chain needs to be understanding its direct customer relationships. And there is um, a principle in the international standards known as the travel rule, which is that each institution as part of one of these long uh, chains of transactions needs to collect that customer information, verify it, go through all the appropriate checks, but then pass it along to every other institution in the chain so that you can see end to end to understand the originators, beneficiaries, any intermediaries in that trans transaction train. So you can screen those names, not just addresses, but names of individuals against sanctions lists to check them against your own internal monitoring intelligence and um, use these other these other tools um, of, of analysis to make sure that you understand every party involved and that no um, funds are flowing through your institution that you're not comfortable with, not just that you've done due diligence on your proximate customer, because we know that in a globalized world, there are going to be uh, third parties interacting across many different um regulated institutions across many different jurisdictions. So um, it's the responsibility of an institution to be able to see that whole picture. And it's something like the travel rule that's designed to enable that kind of process of end-to-end of -end monitoring. Another recommendation in our report that, I, that I'll mention before my next question is on cybersecurity. We talked to a lot of experts in this space, especially those here at FDD, uh, our own cybersecurity experts, uh, thinking of uh, Dr. Samantha Ravitch, uh, Admiral uh, Mark Montgomery, uh, Annie Fixler, others. And what becomes very clear is that there is in people's mind, you hear crypto, right? It must be secure. Uh, but it's it's not actually more secure than anything else in the computer cyberspace. And we've obviously seen that, right, with all the ransomware attacks. You mentioned Russia before, one of the real hubs uh, of ransomware as a service uh, providers uh, in the world. And we make the recommendation that it really does need to be a focus on cybersecurity at all of these companies uh, for wallets, for exchanges, and recommendations to people themselves that you need to take cybersecurity very seriously because pseudo-anonymity does not equal cybersecurity. I do want to ask another question, and that is, let's say we all adopt these strict regulations. All of our recommendations are adopted, and U.S. exchanges are exercising extraordinarily a strict scrutiny on all of their customers and users. And we're able to work with as many allies as possible to align to ensure that we're all sort of on the same page. We're seeing in the news, especially now with the growing Iranian-Russian relationship, China, that these anti-American authoritarian regimes, whether it's disinformation, whether it's media hype propaganda or something real, they claim they're working together now on the blockchain, that they're going to just have an Iranian, Russian, Chinese cryptocurrency exchange, and, and that's how they're going to evade U.S. sanctions. Is that hype or is that something we should take seriously? And if so, how do we counter it? Elaine, I'll start with you and Alex as well. Love your perspective. Yeah, great question. I I do think that's happening. Um, I 
we've seen some of that. Uh, we've done a little bit of analysis um, with some interesting um, uh, tools in this space. Uh, I mean, there is a way to kind of track even through, you know, mixers and, you know, this extraordinarily complex set of uh, movements of crypto. Uh, ultimately, you can trace it back and figure out uh, – at least the the origin of the jurisdiction, right? Of the of, of whoever holds that that crypto, and uh, we have been able to see connections between Iranian actors and Russian actors. Uh, so I think it's happening. Uh, it's probably happening on a much um, wider basis than we realize, uh, because uh, there's probably some limitation around how much we can track. Uh, who's tracking it, and what do we do with that information once we have it? Uh, our ability to go after uh, illicit actors outside of the U.S. financial system is very, very difficult. So it goes back to, you know, one of Alex's points around this, you know, that this connection between uh, the DeFi space and the traditional banking sector, which tends to be the correspondent banking relationship. I mean, that that is where we're going to have the possibility of interdiction. Um, in some way. So uh, we probably need to focus more of our efforts on that. It means banks may need to be doing more um, to work with, with these correspondent banking relationships. And in some cases, that's very difficult. Uh, getting more cooperation between Spurbank, for example, and uh, Bank of America may not be easy right now. So I think that uh, there there's some limitations in terms of what what we can do, um, but it does illustrate really well how complicated this space is getting, and how a traditional regulatory framework probably won't get us all the way there. Um, crypto doesn't have a geographic boundary, but our regulatory structures do. Um, so that really is the conflict, and what we're going to have to figure out. Alex, so there's one. Um interesting technology that I think it's important for us to keep an eye on, which has been piloted, especially in the, the stablecoin space, but that could be included um, sort of as a built-in feature of certain cryptocurrencies, which is the ability of a coin issuer to immobilize or claw back funds that have been, um, you know, interacting with sanctioned parties or that have been um, deemed to, you know, fallen into the wrong hands, that um, that, that could be a feature that um, has been used very selectively by certain stablecoin issuers in the face of, say, U.S. Treasury Department sanctions to effectively freeze funds um, by triggering a kind of control that's built into the code of those coins themselves so that it would prevent future transacting in those particular assets. I think that's a kind of feature that would be really interesting to follow. Um, obviously, to the extent that those features develop, those coins would be disfavored by the, the major international illicit actors. But we may end up with a kind of two-tiered system of um, well-regulated, compliant uh coins that have those kinds of controls built into them, and then other coins that become sort of disfavored by more legitimate actors and that wouldn't be accepted as payment and and um, used in traditional legitimate economic use cases, so that um, it would further marginalize um, certain types of cryptocurrencies that are that don't have those kinds of inbuilt controls. So that's a that's a type of thing that um, I think we want to keep our our eyes on as as certain um, technologies like this sort of immobilization feature develop in the future. 
I think we're at the early stages of you know understanding what this new world is all about. Uh, and hopefully we'll see a little bit more coming out of the Biden administration uh, around some guardrails and parameters. Uh, maybe one final thought, the, you know, the EU seems to be ahead of us in terms of thinking in a more comprehensive way about regulation in this space. Um, that may attract business out of the U.S. and into Europe, um, whether that's a strategic um, problem for us is something we need to consider. Uh, but I, I do think that um, we've been a bit slow in terms of really thinking through what the structure needs to look like um, for the benefit of, of the U.S. Alex, any closing thoughts? No, I think that's I think that's right. I think that we have been a bit slow and that um, greater sort of interagency collaboration across um, in the US, you know, the CFTC, the SEC, um, the banking regulators, and the and then the traditional um, counter illicit finance authorities um, is is really needed to align some of these objectives, because I think that there are, um, there are interdependencies across some of those decisions. And so if a, um, if a given entity is going to have a, the status of being regulated um, by the SEC as a, as a broker dealer and securities, um, it will come along with certain anti-money laundering obligations. And so being able to sync these different regulatory questions up and have um, this kind of sustained interagency dialogue, which is underway, but I think that needs to advance more rapidly, um, would be really useful and set the U.S. market up for success in in this domain and, and also effectiveness in terms of the counter illicit finance objectives. Elaine, Alex, thanks so much for a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Foreign Policy. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us, preferably with five stars. Ratings and reviews help give us visibility and the opportunity to reach more people who seek to understand the most critical national security and foreign policy issues. Also, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow FDD on social media and visit our website at fdd.org. There you can find research by FDD experts. You can subscribe to all FDD's products. You can catch up on any past episodes you may have missed. Finally, we'd love your feedback, your ideas, your questions, your criticisms. Send us an email at foreignpodicy at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.